job, worship team. Thank you for reminding us uh, of the splendor of the Lord. And um, we were brought into the, I think, the presence of the Lord. And every song just pointed right, right to, to God's grace, His mercy, His power. Um, we really appreciate that. Well, we are in the book of Revelation. It's good to see everybody here, by the way. We're in the book of Revelation, chapter 11 today. And all of Revelation is, um, you know, it's a challenge. We have to really use our mind and scratch our heads and try to put some pieces of the puzzle together. But there's always something in it for us. It's written for the edification of the saints. And in particular for, uh, well, for the first century church that first laid their eyes on John's letter. They would be encouraged. They would be uplifted by these words. And it's meant to encourage the church throughout the age until the Lord returns. And in this chapter, we have a vision by John, and he sees a temple, he sees outer, the courts of the temple, he sees outer courts, and then he sees the holy city. And in his vision, uh, there are people, the city gets trampled, the outer court gets trampled, and I believe all that's symbolic since it's the court and the holy city that this takes place in, that's symbolic of the people of God or the church. And so the Lord is revealing in this vision that there will be periods between the advents, the coming of the Lord, uh, or the first coming of the Lord, and then the second coming of the Lord, there will be periods where the church has to endure times of persecution. Uh, There are times when the church enjoys friendly terms with culture and society, and there are times when the church becomes the enemy of culture and society. And so the Lord, in these visions, he's Uh, preparing the church and warning the church. He also uses in his vision and in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of symbolism, there are a lot of times and dates and different things to give us an idea of what to expect and what God might mean. And one of the popular terms is 3.5 years or 1,260 days or 42 months. What does that symbolize? Well, last week we kind of took a deep dive in history where that every uh, Jew that would read that time and every informed Christian in the early church would understand what John was conveying with that time frame. And that turns back to the real historical event that took place between the Testaments, between the Old and the New, of the Maccabean Revolt. And the Greeks came in and they defiled, they desecrated the temple of the Jews, they sacrificed pigs on the altar, uh, they hated the Jews, they persecuted the Jews, and the Maccabean family was tired of it, and they revolted, and against all gods, uh, I mean against all odds through guerrilla warfare, they defeated the Greeks, they drove them out, and they cleansed the temple and reconsecrated the temple, and all of that took three and a half years. And the idea is that when it seems like uh, odds are overwhelming, when it seems like there will be no end to this, this oppression uh, and this hardships, that God has a plan and that, that it's cut short. God only lets things go on a certain amount of time before he intervenes. Before we read our text, I just think it's really worth mentioning because what we've been seeing this about the book of Revelation And you see it in other visions that prophets have in the New Testament. But you really see in the book of Revelation that 
Time is not really measured by a calendar or by your watch. And whenever we see time references, we cannot count on them to be measured by a calendar or a watch. And numbers really aren't used mathematically. They're not really used for us to add up to get a a mathematical problem correct or to get a a number or a date correct. God uses them uh, in this kind of literature, apocalyptic literature, very generically and very symbolically to give us big pictures of what is coming to pass. Whenever we try to make these symbols mean something concrete, that we can count on, like literally to the very day, say three and a half years of persecution, or uh, add all of these numbers up. People have added all these numbers up and looked at the book of Revelation to predict when the Lord will return. Because, you know, we usually do use our calendars. We do rely on our watches. But everybody who has done that up to this point has been 100% wrong. Nobody has predicted it correctly. And all the different people that make attempts to calculate these things. And I think it's because they're not intended to be taken literally. And if anybody's right about some of these things, it's usually by accident. It just happened to happen. To happen. So why, why would God do this? Well, I think time obviously is very important. Events are important. But there's also a part of God's plan where he doesn't want us to be watching our clocks. He wants us to be watching our hearts. He doesn't want to be so infatuated like we're prepared on this very particular day. He wants our hearts to be prepared all the time. He wants us to be in a relationship with him and not obsessed with dates and times so much that were not intended to be given to us so that we can count on this particular day. We, we know what God is up to. We know the Lord is coming. And nobody knows exactly when that will be. But he gives us general signs, generic signs. He gives us wisdom and knowledge to have a, a good feel. As believers, we have a good feel about things. We, the, the Spirit gives us a discernment about things. So it's not like it's so out there or symbolic that we don't understand what God means or God is saying in the big picture. We do. We're not going to be left out. God will see to it. His hand is upon us. So we just want to be careful as far as, well, what does that mean to us? It just means that we want to be careful about not trying to take things literally and even organize our calendar. You know, we, we want to get God's calendar and bring it into our calendar so we can plan our week, right? And it's just not going to work that way. God is in control. And the most important thing is that our heart is right with Him. I think that It's not so that we would know what day. It's so that our hearts would be prepared when the day comes. And it's very kind of God uh, not to leave us completely in the dark, but to let us know as believers there's a sense that your life could look like this or your your Christian life could look like that. In other words, it could be a life of peace. It could be a uh, life of hardship or anything in between. And when we look at the history of the church, that's exactly what we find. That's the way history is unraveling before our eyes. So one of my sayings in this book is we're not going to understand it all, but we understand enough. We will absolutely understand enough of the big picture of what God wants to convey here. It gives us enough uh, to know that we need to obey Him, 
uh, gives us enough to please Him, to worship Him, and to serve Him as Lord. So with that kind of introduction and setting that stage there, I want to go ahead and read our text today. So we're going to talk about the two witnesses here. And we're still between trumpet blasts 6 and 7. Revelation chapter 11. Let's read the first six verses. My first point is that the witnesses have been empowered or they have power. So John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my witnesses, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So, we will look at what I think the identity of these two witnesses are. They're not here this morning, I don't think, these guys. Uh, I told you what I, I identified them last week. But before we look at exactly who I think the two witnesses are or what they symbolize, I think the important uh, message here is that they are empowered by God. They have power. God has empowered these witnesses, whoever they are, to do wonderful things. Uh, they're witnessing to the Lord. They're giving signs to the Lord. They, God's anointing is upon them. And He is working through these agents. And we know in Scripture that when the power of God comes upon you, it's through the agent of God, the Holy Spirit. And that's how God works. Whenever there's a powerful thing done, even in creation, the Spirit was hovering over the waters and the power of God went forth. That's why a lot of times in Scripture when somebody does something extraordinary... It's almost always prefaced with, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. And when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon His people, He empowers them in particular ways to serve His purpose in that day and time according to His redemptive plan. So, He has enabled, uh, he enabled Noah in the past to build an ark. Um, he enabled Moses to lead His people out of exile um, from Egypt. He enabled Samson to do incredible things to overcome the Philistines. So it's, it's all different examples of how the power of God is displayed. All this power, it's governed by God, it's managed by God, it's, it's given by God. It's this enabling power through His Spirit. And so in this particular time, these witnesses have exemplary power that comes from the Lord. So who are they? Well, you depends on what book you read, really. It depends on what interpretation or where, where your stance is in approaching the book of Revelation. Uh, some people are convinced the two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah because um, they never died. 
They're the saints that just went up to be with God. Uh, some say that it's Moses and Elijah because they are obviously referenced in this passage. The miracles that they performed, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but Elijah called down fire. Of course, Moses turned the river into blood. And by the way, it was also those two that appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. So it might seem like they would be the prime candidates for witnesses who will literally come back into a certain age of the church. But the list goes on because all of these identities, when you try to tie it back to, to different people and consistently interpret Scripture that way, it begins to break down. And so then new people come up. Some people have said, well, it's Jeremiah and Elijah, others Joshua and Caleb, others Peter and Paul, and the list just goes on and on because it's really hard to nail it down to two individual people. And I think that probably because it's not intended to be two individual people. I think it's vague out there because it symbolizes something. And if that's the case, what would it symbolize? And as I shared last week, I think the witnesses... uh, represent the church. Because if you think about what the witnesses are doing, that's what God has empowered the church to do throughout the ages. Also, uh, this passage describes these two witnesses symbolically. Immediately after the reference is made, they are the two lampstands, they are the two olive trees. Now we know from the first two chapters of the book of Revelation that God, or Christ more accurately, was addressing the church, the seven churches, as the lampstands. They're the ones that are the light in the earth. It's God's churches. And Jesus says, even says, I walk among my lampstands. I walk among the churches. That's why he knew in the cases of the seven churches exactly what they were all experiencing. He knew their strengths. He knew their weaknesses. And he gave encouragement. And he gave warnings to each. So it's, it's uh, I believe, representative of the power of Christ in the church. They are identified in that way. Well, where does this idea of lampstands and olive trees come up? Well, that's in the Old Testament. And we've seen that a lot of times John in this, this apocalypse draws from Old Testament scripture, Old Testament prophets, the the general idea, and he pulls it into his book and he uses it in a different way to make his point. doesn't quote it verbatim. Well, in Zechariah chapter 4, he has a vision as well, this prophet. And in his vision, there is a lampstand and two olive trees. It turns out in his vision that the lampstand is... um, uh, the person who is represented as a lampstand is identified as a rubble. So this is the time when the Jews came back from ed- exile and Nehemiah's rubble, uh, Ezra, these guys were rebuilding the temple and the people of God. And God speaks a word over Zerubbabel uh, as his representative leader there among the people of God. He is the lampstand. And this is when he Um, We quote the scripture often, but here's the context of it. When he says, it's not by might, it's not by power, but my spirit, says the Lord. He speaks that over Zerubbabel, the lampstand. And he's basically saying this work that Zerubbabel is engaged in, you can't stop it. 
You can't stop it because I'm empowering him. This is a work of the Spirit of God to regather the people of God and to rebuild the temple of God. Now that particular vision doesn't identify the two olive trees, but most scholars think that it's um, the high priest Joshua because he was also anointed by God and used by God in that day. So you have this representation going on here. There's a sense in which those two people, and they're identified symbolically, they represent what God is doing among the whole community of God. I think John uses or uses that general idea here and pulls it in. In Zechariah, the Lord literally says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord as of the whole earth. So they're representatives here, and God is using them in a way. So John pulls that in, I believe, to symbolically speak about or identify how God has empowered the church in different times and different ages to serve Him in particular ways. A lot of times according to the intensity of the need. And in this passage, it is times have gotten very evil. They've gotten very wicked. Another thing about Revelation is that it's mostly black and white. Like you have the people of God and the people who are not of God. And so things are put in very stark terms here. So, the church, I believe, is God's servant to witness to the Lord, to preach, to proclaim the gospel. And these are the very things that uh, we are trained to be disciples to do, to know God, to worship God, and to be able to share God uh, verbally with others and to be able to be a witness to the Lord uh, with our actions as we step out in obedience to Him. These two witnesses in this passage, they're able to address the entire earth. That would be hard for just two individuals to do, but it wouldn't be hard for the church of God, the universal church of God to do, who is, uh, is prominent or evident in most places of the world today. And so God gives His church the power to proclaim the power to witness for this time that it's three and a half years and it, it represents a time of intensity again. It's, it's a battle that's going on, but it will be cut short. And the way it's cut short in this passage is that the Lord takes the church up. But the numbers again are symbolic. I mean, if we knew when the Lord was coming back, practically speaking, what would that do for us? Like, if you had that day on your calendar, how would it change your life? What is written in Revelation is going to come to pass. What's written in God's Word, it's going to come to pass what, no matter what we know or don't know. No matter what's on our calendar or what's not on our calendar. So, these uh, witnesses, they're timeless. And they're able to address all the nations of the earth. And I believe the time um, of three and a half years is symbolic. So between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, we have these battles. And we have our marching orders, if you will, to be Christ's light in the darkness. And there's going to be times when the darkness will be greater than others. I think we are witnessing that. Every generation of Christians says, yep, that's my day. And I'm right with them. That's my day. Times are getting darker. Now these witnesses are in sackcloth, which is made of goat hair or camel hair, 
uh, made to be uncomfortable on purpose. Because in the Old Testament, they wore, literally wore it. But it symbolized something. They wore it for the purpose to symbolize tremendous grief. Uh, you you um, repent in sackcloth and ashes. You get down on the ground. You empty yourself. And it's symbolic of a time where you're in tremendous distress. And so the idea here would be that, that it's a time where the church is proclaiming the gospel. But they're under tremendous distress. They're calling for the world to repent. The world is in darkness. The world is, is, is consuming evil. And the church is distressed because the word is going out, but unbelievers are not repenting and they just continue to follow this path. And so it's in sackcloth. It's in great sadness and great grief for the church to see people refuse the gracious offer of Jesus Christ. But they are so empowered, our text says, that fire spews from their mouths like literally like a dragon, and consumes their enemies. I do not take that literally either. I think that's symbolic. So, but what would it be symbolic of? If you have these witnesses, they're proclaiming Christ. Uh, they have this fire coming out of their mouth, and it's very powerful. Well, where do we find any kind of symbolism like that? Well, in Scripture, that often is symbolic of uh, the Word of God. The Word of God has the power symbolically of fire. Now we do see it literally in the reference that was given. Elijah, a prophet of God, he called down fire upon a captain and his 50 men, and they were consumed. Poof, just like that. He also called down fire when it was the big battle between uh, the prophets of Baal, Who's the true God? And they laid their sacrifices out there and the false prophets cried and cut themselves for the false gods to lap up the sacrifice. That went on. Nothing happened. Elijah calls. Fire comes from heaven. It laps up the sacrifice. It laps up every drop of water, anything pertaining the altar and everything was gone. So, but, when, but when you look at it symbolically, we read scriptures like the psalmist in Psalm 39.3. And he says, my heart became hot within me. And as, as I mused, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. So there's this idea of the word of God having this burning effect and then going forth. Now, Jeremiah says something very uh, similar and very pointed in Jeremiah 5.14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, Behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. So you see, I think symbolically, even in the Old Testament, it's, a, it's powerful, powerful symbolism of the power of the Word of God and the effect that it has on people. And there is a sense in which when we've been exposed to the Word of God, uh, it will either, the effect will, that we will bow and repent and we will be saved and preserved, or that we're, we're already stand in condemnation and we're headed for the flames. We're headed for hell. That's how powerful the Word of God is. We don't ever want to underestimate 
the Word of God in that way. We don't want to estimate, underestimate the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think a lot of times, I know I am guilty of taking it for granted because I benefit from the grace of the Gospel. I mean, God has transformed my life. I'm just way more blessed. I'm happier. I stand in awe at the power of God and the majesty of God. Before I came to Christ, I didn't know any of that. Very, very shallow. The, the, and that's because the power of God, the gospel, tr- literally transforms a life. So symbolically, yeah, we can talk about flames and fire burning up wood, but when we speak the gospel, when we share God's word to, to whatever degree or to ha- whoever, this is powerful truth. This is the truth that God has given the church as the greatest witness And the purpose is to transform souls. The purpose is for the olive branch to go out to rebels to have a way back in through forgiveness through the sacrifice of Christ. So even you just think about if you share the gospel with somebody, it is incredibly powerful because it can literally transform an entire life. A life that was going in this direction now turns around and slowly begins to see God for who He is, exalt God, make sacrifices for God, do crazy things for God that He would never do before because He sees God is so worth it. You see the power of the gospel? And I think about this in my life. I was not headed in a good direction. I was a mess because I just believed what the world believed. Whatever lie came down the channel as a naive teenager and young man, Oh, that's what gives you happiness? Okay, I'll try that. I'll try this. I'll do whatever it takes. And it all let me down. But when the gospel got a hold, when the Spirit of God came into my life, all of that changed and light bulbs began to go off because now I saw this foundation of truth. And I'm a life that's literally been transformed. And many of you are, you bear lives and your life is a witness of the power of God to transform a life. And as we share ourselves, as we share our testimony, as we share God's word, it has the power to continue to do that. And that is God's intention for the church. For the church to be a witness. Now, in in the big picture, um, this is what's happening here. And we pray that God's kingdom would come. We want to be good witnesses. And I've mentioned this before, but I want to mention it again as we think about the church, as we think about good times and, and hard times, as we think about our place. But also, you know, we're, we're living our lives, but God's plan is coming about. We don't always get it. We don't understand what's God, what God's doing all the time, and we don't need to. God tells us what we need to know. But I think something that is so powerful as well as we think about the transforming power of God is also the transforming power of, of prayer. Because we pray that the Lord's Prayer. And this just and I'm just sharing it again because it, it just it just gets me. When we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know how powerful that is? Like that is incredible to even say that. Because God is doing really powerful things. He is working in people's hearts. He's working in in earthly powers and realms. We have no idea what he's doing. He is bringing about his plan. And we pray that prayer 
Uh, I pray it every night. Um, I, I, I was raised Catholic, so I prayed it as a kid because I, I had to and I wanted to be good. And, you know, it made sense to me. I kind of liked it, but I didn't understand the significance. But now I choose, I willingly choose to pray it on a daily basis. I don't always know how God answers that prayer. Like, how is God's kingdom coming into our lives? We don't know for sure. Sometimes, in concrete ways, the Lord will do things and answer very specifically. Well, I prayed this and God did that. But a lot of times, it's just generic. We don't know. But it's happening. We know it's happening. Sinners are being saved. Sin is being forgiven. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. We are forgiving others. So everything that we pray in that prayer is actually transpiring. We just don't always get to see how specific it is. But it's a powerful thing. And God is bringing His kingdom. It keeps us on our toes, if nothing else. So we have, I think, this picture of the church and a a time of powerful witness and power um, in times of tremendous darkness. And then what happens next in this passage, in verses 7 through 10, is that these powerful witnesses are overcome. They're killed, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now you have even Revelation talking about symbolism. And that's something. So there's symbolism upon symbolism here. So these witnesses that go forth, you know, different, God empowers the, the church at different times and ages, but then it kind of seems to come to an end. Like evil will not go on forever. And the church as you know it here on earth will be transformed. It will, we will not worship like this forever. You know, we won't come here and, and have these prayer requests and have these praises and life as we know it, as wonderful it is. God has a much better plan for us. This too will come to an end. But Scripture tells us that the work of the church, the proclaiming of the gospel and the witnessing, it will be finished. That is on a, a clock, God's clock. I don't know when it is, but there is a time. And the Lord will... He'll coach us, the Holy Spirit will coach us, and we'll have an idea of this. So, uh, Lord willing, we we will be prepared. But there's a time when um, the second hand will click. And the time of grace, the time of proclamation of the gospel will be over. And the page flips, and now we're into the judgment of those that have rebelled against God and refused His grace. And now, I think that's what is described here and when that time comes of course Matthew tells us the gospel has to go out to the people groups here that will have been accomplished when the final days come so in every age we see this great battle the enemy opposes the church Satan opposes God what is the purpose by that well we're going to find out later um, that the beast is the Antichrist, and then you have false prophets, and took the, talked a little bit about that in Sunday school this morning, where he copycats, in a sense, the Trinity. Um, and the Antichrist comes back to life after a mortal wound. 
But he is the lawless one. Uh, he is the Antichrist. Paul refers to him as a lawless one in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. So here's what's happening. Here's what's behind a lot of the hardship that comes our way and that the church faces. The apostle says to the church of Thessalonica, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, Satan, the Antichrist, is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So the, we, we have to get out of the way if we believe that there's only one true God. As far as Satan's concerned, we need to be crushed. We need to be opposed because we're telling the world, no, this is the true God. The God of Scripture, not all these false gods out here. Not all the wannabe gods. Well, Satan wants that position. He wants to sit on the throne. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be adored. So you see the great conflict that the church has been in since the beginning. And this beast overcomes them. He, he conquers them. He attacks the messengers in order to attack this dangerous, powerful, burning message of the truth of the gospel. And in the end, the unbelievers will continue to reject this message. And there will come a time where God will say, that's enough. And He takes His church up. You've suffered enough. You've finished your mission. It's complete. And He takes the church up. And there will be a time when the world is left without the witness of the church. There will be a time when the gospel will not be shared from person to person. Because those that believe in it and those that live it have been redeemed and brought up to the Lord. God tells us He will permit the Antichrist to kill saints. Uh, we do see martyrs in our age. We will continue to see that to different degrees. In the end, it gets even worse. Some saints, not all, but some saints will die. Verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where the Lord was crucified. It's that evil. It's called Jerusalem. is identified with Sodom and, and Egypt. I mean, you know what... Sodom was like you couldn't even find ten righteous people in that place. It was so immoral. Uh, Egypt, they enslaved God's people. They totally oppressed God's people. They, they killed babies there. And Jerusalem is symbolically that bad because this is the place and the people that crucified the Lord, the Son of God. What's the meaning of the great city? Well, Jerusalem symbolizes um, Egypt and Sodom, but I think Jerusalem also, the great city, symbolizes something bigger than just the city of Jerusalem. It's, it symbolizes all the wickedness. It symbolizes the kingdom of wickedness in the world. So just like earlier in this passage, you have the holy city uh, that represents the people of God. You have the great city that represents the people who do not believe in God. So he's using uh, 
these two cities to differentiate between the holy and the profane. When it gets right down to it, bottom line, black and white, there really are only two kinds of people and two kinds of cities in this world, right? And one of the church fathers, uh, Augustine, he wrote that book, The City of Man and the City of God. And it describes that there are people in this world that are building the world. They love the world, but they don't love God. And this is the place they want to dwell. This is what they want to worship. But there are the people of God that love God. That's the city of God. They're all about Him. They care more about Him than their, their own lives. And, and we see that throughout time. So the great city represents a, a worldwide city of unbelief and defiance against God. So in this rebellion and in this disrespect for God and His people, these bodies were left exposed in this great city, this city of unbelief. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So, the mission is complete. The Lord uh, raptures His church or takes His church up in the very end. The world will exist without the presence of grace and the offer of God and forgiveness. And the, the world can't be happier that the church is gone at this moment. They just can't be happier. They rejoice that the powerful witness and that flame that provoked them and bothered them and burned them like wood is gone. And they totally disrespect these witnesses. And the idea, of course, if you... Uh, most civilizations show respect to the dead. They honor the dead. They bury the dead. So this is just symbolic of a tremendous disrespect. A tremendous display of shame upon God's people here. And the way they react, they basically red solo cup, let's have a party. They exchange gifts, they get out their best food. They, they, this is a time of exuberance. And it's so interesting to me to, to how this passage nails, I think, kind of cuts to the chase and nails the perspective of the world um, of the church. These two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And I don't like to be seen as that. But the truth of the matter is, to a lot of people, the church and believers are nothing but provocation and torment. Now why would somebody see such a loving group of people, such a fine group of folks that way? It's because of the truth. It's because of what you stand for. It's because you believe Scripture to be absolute. You, be, you believe that this is the revelation of God and there is only one God and everything will be accountable to that. And because you believe that, you share that with others and it makes them feel accountable to something they don't want to believe in and they don't like that. And so when we point out truth, and which I hope is done in love, because who wants to let people that you love or at least care for just live a pretentious lie? And fall for things that are destructive and ruinous. And yet when we share truth, 
we are looked upon as haters. You don't accept me, you hate me because you don't agree with my lifestyle. See, it's all twisted. It's all twisted how this works and how this goes down in this perception of um, the church and, and what we're trying to accomplish. It's a very unpopular position to believe in an absolute truth today. Uh, we live in a very pretentious world. Um, science doesn't seem to matter anymore. Truth doesn't seem to matter anymore. Reality, what is reality? Is there even such a thing? So we're going to come and, and try to win over or try to love over people that want nothing to do with that? In that sense, it's provoking. All you have to do is go on the street uh, and begin to preach the gospel or ask people, would you like to hear the gospel message? And how many people are just going to be open arm? Yes, I want to hear the truth. I want to hear the gospel. Most of them, if they even see you, I think Bobby, did, Bobby Hill did a skit here, as a matter of fact, when John Rosima shared his testimony, sharing the gospel. Uh, our, little, our little actor, Bobby, he, he came over and before he even got close to John, he turned around and he went the other way. There's this, we don't like to talk about it, but there's this really hard resistance against God and his people. Because it, it pigeonholes us to make a decision. What do you believe? How are you going to live? Where are you going to spend eternity? So it's just so telling to me how things are so twisted where God's intention is to love people into the kingdom and yet sin is so strong that it's looked upon as as hate because we're not making it easy for people to live in sin. We're not making it easy for people to pretend that there are different realities and there really are different gods out there to worship. So the world looks at that as torment. But the parting doesn't last for long because the witnesses are resurrected after the three and a half days of breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet the great fear fell on those who saw them, and then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a, a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. And the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe has come. So we did at least get through the second woe here. So just as God breathed life into Adam, he breathes life into uh, the martyrs. He breathes life into those that have given their life um, among the church. So quickly the tables are turned. Because now you have those that were being oppressed and those that were being killed. Well, now they're actually in a different position. And now they're in a position to rule and they're in the position to judge. And it is their God that will pour the wrath upon the unbelievers. So the unbelievers now says they stand in fear and they give glory to God. Well, what kind of fear is this? What's going on here? Let me quote Simon Kistemacher. The witness is not raised from the dead to convert the unbelievers, for the period of grace has come to an end when divine judgment is pending. The world that gloated over the demise of God's servants instantly realizes that its punishment is approaching. As a result, the adversaries of these witnesses are filled with dread and fear. 
the idea is that uh, if, these, if they watched, if the world watched um, the Christians come to life, or the rapture take place, that's terrifying because what it means is, oh no, what they told me was true. They warned me, they told me this would take place, and I didn't believe it, and here they go. But they glorified God. Does this mean that they uh, all repented? Not in this context. The gospel's time has come to an end. And it's more of an amusement. And how many times do we see people, even in our culture, they're amused at what God can do. They're amused at signs and wonders, but it doesn't change their heart at all. We talked a little bit about that this morning. Lots going on. There's plenty of reasons to believe, good solid reasons, but it doesn't. It's more amusement than it is remorse. And so they realize that uh, the judgment is coming upon them. So in conclusion, as we think about, you know, what, what do we take home with this, this passage? How can it help us today? And I think that the thing that I would leave us with is the power. Do not underestimate who you are in Christ. Do not underestimate the power that your witness, that your testimony has in your sphere of influence. It really is intended to change the direction of people's lives. I know it's not warmly embraced, but it doesn't make it any less true. And there are those out there that need to hear it. And a lot of times, the first time isn't enough, and the second time isn't enough. And you witness a dozen or a couple dozen times. But the Spirit of God is at work. Lives are getting transformed around the world because of the witness of the church. And let's not underestimate our prayers either. Uh, James, referring to Elijah, who's in this passage, he has the, the power to call things down, and he prayed, this man prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain. And then he prayed that it would rain. And James uses that to encourage us in our prayer life. Now, that's not something that's going to happen every day. I understand that. But we don't want to underestimate the prayers that we pray. God hears God cares in everything that goes, every little particle of our life and our thought and our prayer and our witness that goes into his plan is to fulfill the great plan of redemption. The Lord, in the end of this book, says, I'm coming soon. What does that mean? Just means soon. It means what God wants it to mean. That's all. But we know that he's coming. We know that we have a mission to do that it's a, it's a limited time only, that we will be taken up into heaven, and that the Satan's reign for evil is also limited. It will not continue to go on. So we just want to pray for the Lord to return and pray and pray and pray until the day He actually arrives and takes us home. And I'll close with a scripture out of Revelation. He who hears... He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the preaching of his word.